don't make bargains with God, and for goodness sake, don't make bargains with God you don't even intend to keep. Why? So that you may not fall under judgment. As I said before, God doesn't take it lightly when we take Him lightly. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his series with part four of When Life's Not Fair. As you've learned throughout this series in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, this life is full of injustice. You'll be personally impacted sooner or later. It's inevitable. But the key for the follower of Christ is having comfort in knowing how to handle those moments. And the Bible gives believers those keys. Today you'll learn the final essential response for the Christian when dealing with unfairness and injustice. Open your Bible now and let's join Tom Pennington with today's message on The Word Unleashed. When life isn't fair, we must respond, number one, by being patient for the justice that Christ will bring when He comes. And secondly, we must strengthen our spiritual resolve. A third important response to injustice is found in verse 9. Be gracious toward one another. Be gracious toward one another. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. The word complain here means to groan or to sigh. It primarily denotes uh, an inner feeling of criticism, often that isn't even spoken. It's the blame game inside the heart. And we are to refrain from doing this, notice, against one another. Clearly the reference here is to each other in the church, to brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, with a cursory reading of this passage, it's easy to wonder why James inserted this verse here. But if you'll stop to think for a moment, you'll come to full grips with just how well it fits. Think for a moment of how stress of any kind affects our closest relationships. We are prone when we are in the pressure cooker to lash out at those nearby. Listen to Douglas Moo, the great commentator in the book of James. He writes, grumbling against those who are close to us is particularly likely to occur when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances. We vent the pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close friends and family. So it'd be quite natural if James' readers, under the pressure of poverty and persecution, would turn their frustrations on one another. You see, when our lives are filled with trouble and difficulty, it's a tragic reality that we tend to lash out at the people we love most. Realize that when life isn't fair, you will have that tendency. You'll have a tendency to blame the people in your heart. You'll have a tendency to blame the people around you that you love the most. Be aware of that reality and guard yourself from it. Why? Well, he gives us two reasons here. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. First of all, because God's judgment is impartial, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Secondly, God's judgment is imminent. 
Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is a powerful image that is painted here. Literally, the Greek text says, Behold, the judge has stood before the doors. It's a use of the perfect in grammar to predict something that's so certain it's as if it's already happened. We would translate it like this in English. Behold, the judge is absolutely standing before the doors. It's plural in the Greek text, the word door. It's, it's a powerful picture. It pictures Christ standing on the other side of eternity, just about to throw the doors open and enter his judgment hall. It conjures up the picture out of our American courtrooms where the bailiff is waiting for the judge to enter through the side door, and as soon as the judge throws open the door, he says, all rise. That's the picture behind this expression. The judge is standing at the doors ready to throw them open and come into his judgment hall. This is the same image Peter uses as he writes to suffering Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4, he says, you know what, the people you used to run with are surprised that you don't run with them to the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, they attack you with hateful speech, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There Christ is pictured as eager. It's as if he's standing at the door just waiting for his father to say, it's time, and he'll throw the doors open, and he'll make it right. When life's not fair, be patient until the Lord's coming. Be strong in your resolve. Thirdly, be gracious with one another. Now our fourth response to injustice should be this. Be encouraged through the example of others. Be encouraged through the example of others. We find this in verses 10 and 11. Notice the fourth command or imperative that occurs in this passage is in verse 10. Brethren, take as an example of suffering and patience. By the way, here, the word patience is a different word. And it's important that you understand this. It's a word which is one of my favorite New Testament words. It literally means to remain under. And the picture, the best picture of this word is weightlifting. If you ever watched Olympic sports, you know as, they, as those great big men lift those weights, they have to jerk them over their head and hold them for a certain period of time. As they hold them, they are, this Greek word, remaining under that weight. That's endurance. They're remaining under. And here we're told that there are those whom we should carefully think about and consider as examples or patterns of those who suffered, but who as they suffered remained under. They endured. And here James gives us two examples. First of all, in verse 10, he says, take notice or consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. You know, most of the Old Testament prophets faced suffering. Think of Jeremiah for a moment. If you haven't read Jeremiah's prophecy, you ought to. Here is a faithful man, true to the Lord, did what he was told, labored in the worst of circumstances, and what did he get for it? Jeremiah was thrown in an empty well. 
and left to sink down in the mud and to die. In fact, if it hadn't been for a Cushite and 30 of his men who came and rescued Jeremiah, he would have died sinking in that muddy pit. But now, almost 3,000 years later, how do we think about Jeremiah and his suffering? Do we pity him? Do we think that he was enduring God's judgment and God's frown? No, absolutely not. Notice verse 11. We count those blessed who endured. We think of them as occupying a special place of honor and privilege, forever enjoying the smile of God. Is that how you think of yourself when you suffer injustice? You should. That's what James is saying. They were an example of suffering and enduring. You follow that example, and you too can one day say that you are blessed. You have a place of privilege with God. Consider the prophets. Notice the second example of suffering and endurance. It's in verse 11. It's Job. You have heard of the endurance of Job. It's an interesting example, isn't it? We wouldn't say Job was necessarily patient, but we would say he endured. As one commentator says, Job's is no groveling, passive, unquestioning submission. Job struggled and questioned and sometimes even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. He endured. You see it in Job chapter 1, verse 20, where after everything he had was destroyed, we read, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground and worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. In Job 13, verse 15, we read, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. Job endured. Notice James add, adds back in James chapter 5. He says, He endured, and you have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Literally, you have seen the end of the Lord. It means you've read the end of the story. You've seen what God had in mind. Now, when I say that, when, when I say to you, you've read the end of Job's story, what comes into your mind? You think of Job 42. Turn there for a moment. Job 42. You think of God's physical material prosperity. Verse 10 of Job 42, the, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. His brothers and his sisters come back to each Give him a gift. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. So now he's got two sets of children, one in heaven and one here on earth. After this, verse 16, Job lived 140 years, saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations, and he died an old man and full of days. Is that really the end of Job's story that... James wants us to see? No, that's not the point. That's not the end 
of every story. Sometimes they don't all live happily ever after. The real outcome of Job's, or excuse me, of the Lord's dealings with Job isn't about his amazing new wealth. It's about his amazing new perspective of God. It's about the greatness of his God. Look at the end of James chapter 5, verse 11. You've seen the end of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Now turn back to Job 42. Let me show you what the real end of the story is. It's found in Job 42, verse 1. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I now understand, God, that you're in charge and that you do what's right and I can trust you. I may not understand. Job never understood. But he says, I can trust you. That's what he's saying. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? I realize that you know what you're doing. And I declared what I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me which I didn't know. Hear now and I will speak, I will ask you and you instruct me. In other words, God, you teach me, I have nothing to teach you. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Now folks, I want you to notice that when Job says this, his circumstances have not changed. He still has nothing. He still has a grumbling, complaining wife. He still is sitting in ashes, scraping the sores on his body with pieces of broken pottery. So what does he have? He has a new humility, and he has a new appreciation of who God is. That was the end of God's dealings with Job. And this is what we learn in the middle of our suffering and of life's injustices as well. We learn about God. We learn that he's in charge. We learn that he knows what he's doing. We learn that he's merciful and that he's full of compassion, that he can be trusted. You know what James is saying? You and I are to gain courage from the stories of men like Job and like Jeremiah and like Charles Simeon. Read the biblical stories. See the end of the story, how God made himself known, how he put himself on display with these who endured suffering and injustice. And gain courage from it to face your own injustices. Read Christian biographies, the story of the great men of the church who suffered incredible injustice, incredible difficulty and trial, and yet stayed true to God and let your own heart have courage built into it by their stories. That's what James is saying. God's compassion and his mercy and his faithfulness to others infuses us with fresh courage and endurance as we follow their example of suffering and endurance. Well, there's one more response to life's injustices in this passage. It's found in verse 12 of James chapter 5. Beware of rash vows to God. Beware of rash vows to God. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Now, there is a lot of discussion about how this verse fits into the context of James 5. There are two primary options you can take. One is 
that it stands completely alone. In other words, that it has no relationship to what goes before it, and it has no relationship to what comes after it. It's simply one standalone thought that James realizes toward the end of his letter he wants to come back to and deal with the tongue one more time. If this is his intention, then verse 12 is a kind of warning identical to our Lord's in the Sermon on the Mount. Turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Essentially, James would be saying exactly what Christ is saying in Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Again, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Now, Jesus was dealing with a problem in the culture. Like in our culture, lying was pandemic. And so people to express their integrity and to try to drive home that they were in fact telling the truth would attach to their statement some kind of oath. And it became this sort of sophisticated system because here's the way they thought. If you swore by God, then you were really obligated to keep it because then God was going to deal with you if you, if you messed around with him. But if you swore by something else, then there was a loophole there. And you could get out of it in certain circumstances, and there was a lot of wiggle room if you swore an oath by something else. And so it really came to mean nothing. That's what Jesus is, corrupt, is correcting here. So if this is what James means, James would simply be warning us not to use oaths designed to give us loopholes and that are in and of themselves patently dishonest. Just speak the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. That may be all that James intends to say. By the way, neither Jesus nor James are forbidding us from taking oaths, for example, when we are in a courtroom. Jesus does that himself before Pilate. Also, um, that has been true throughout the history of the church. God himself takes oaths. Hebrews chapter 6 records God taking an oath on his own word. So it's not that kind of an oath is wrong. He's forbidding the kind of oath that's made simply to press home your own word in daily conversation and perhaps even to give you some room to wiggle out of if you should so choose. I don't think that's what James intends. I personally believe that the second option is more likely, and that is that verse 12 is not simply a standalone verse thrown in the middle of a chapter with no connection to what comes before or after. I think verse 12 is connected to the verses that immediately come before it. So in this case, James is warning us about a common sinful response to life's injustices. Now, if, if I'm right, and this is the right interpretation, then there are two possibilities. He could be saying, make sure that when you're in an unjust situation that you speak the truth with the people around you perhaps even those abusing you. Don't make commitments you don't intend to keep and then justify it by some elaborate scheme. But I think more likely, this is what James means, that verse 12 isn't talking about how we respond to people at all, but how we respond to God. I'm convinced that this is the option that James has in mind here. 
You see, when you and I find ourselves in the midst of great difficulty, we are tempted to respond how? By bargaining with God. Of course, the most famous example from all of church history is a young unregenerate monk by the name of, or a rather lawyer by the name of Martin Luther, who gets caught in this terrible thunderstorm, and when he's almost struck by lightning and he's knocked off his horse, he falls down and commits, makes a bargain with God that if God will spare his life, then he'll become a monk, which he does. But it is extremely common for all of us when we find ourselves in tight circumstances to bargain and to barter with God. And in some cases, even to do so somewhat lightly with our fingers crossed behind our back, not really even intending to keep our word, but hoping that God doesn't notice. Now, I really think this is what James intends. George Stulock, in his commentary, paraphrases this passage this way. Above all, don't fall into swearing as if you could manipulate God by your oaths. Instead, speak honestly and directly. I think James is saying the same thing Solomon said back in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Turn back there with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. Solomon says, I want you to guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Don't be hasty in what you say, verse 2. Notice verse 4, he gets to the heart of the issue. When you make a vow to God. Now, a vow was something that was allowed and was part of the Old Testament law. It's found in both Numbers and Deuteronomy. It was simply a voluntary promise to God. It could be a promise made in hopes of a blessing from God, or it could be a promise made in gratitude for a blessing from God. But either way, if you make a vow, Solomon says, don't delay and don't evade. Notice verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. You see, there's a real danger of bribery when we find ourselves in distress. It is better, verse 5, that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God, probably a reference to the priest, don't say to the priest, oh, it was a mistake. You know, I really, sh I, I was, it was a bad time. I didn't really mean it. That isn't what I should have said. It was a mistake. Why? The end of verse 6. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? In other words, God doesn't take it lightly when we take him lightly. The solution is found in verse 7. Fear God. I think this is exactly the point James is making in James 5.12. But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no. Don't make bargains with God, and for goodness sake, don't make bargains with God you don't even intend to keep. Why? The end of verse 12. So that you may not fall under judgment. As I said before, God doesn't take it lightly when we take him lightly.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, When Life's Not Fair. Tom will bring you a new series next time. But before we leave you today, here again is Tom with some closing thoughts. So we've considered how to respond when we are treated unjustly, but how do we respond when we see others being treated unjustly? Here the scripture helps us as well. We need to treat them the way we'd want to be treated. We need to seek out as much as lies within us the justice that they deserve. And so we look to ensure that people are treated rightly and justly before the law. We want to do what we can to make sure that justice prevails in any given situation. And so justice matters. That's not what James is saying. We ought to do everything within our power to ensure that the justice is done in the realm of human events and relationships. At the same time, we need to remind ourselves that there's only so much we can do. There will be injustice in a fallen world. And that's when we, and we encourage our brothers and sisters to entrust themselves when they're treated unjustly, to a just God who will bring justice to bear. That's our hope. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.